Bill's Nelly. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 422. Jason Lingren is with me and John D'Antonio. You may remember all the way back in episode 370, we did an episode with Jim Gale. And I actually interacted with Jim Gale and he sent people out to redo my garden, uh, to put edible things in. John D'Antonio came out and did that. And that's what we're going to be covering today. Uh, The garden was put in at the beginning of spring and it's in full bloom right now. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And a hot good morning. Yes, indeed. Uh, We had a heck of a storm go through yesterday, but let's do this. Uh, Welcome, John. Thanks, Crow. Thank you, Jason. It's great to be here. Uh, I've been listening to your podcast for quite a while, and I'm really happy to be on it with you both. All right, cool. So let's uh, let's quickly frame up what Jim Gale's doing, why you're a part of it, and what we've done here, along with any contact information you want to give out. Bear in mind, this is hour one. You use an email, you could be pummeled. Okay. So my name is John D'Antonio. I've been with Food Forest Abundance since last year. It's been, a, been about a year now that I contacted Jim after hearing him on several podcasts and his vision for sustainable permaculture in backyards across this country. And I will let you know that my, I will give out an email. I'm just going to give out the email this, this hour. It is massfoodforest at gmail.com. That's my business email account. And if you have any questions or you're interested, you can please contact me there. So one of the things that that I think is very important to understand is, do you gentlemen know what the uh, largest irrigated crop by area is in this country? Uh-huh. Would it be corn or potatoes or soybeans? <laughs> uh, <laughs> close. It's actually uh, grass in lawns in this country. Oh, that was oh. going to be my guess. <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not calling that a crop. I'm, I'm calling <laughs> that an egotistical <laughs> endeavor. <laughs> of course. Well, yes. It, and that was as of 2005. So hopefully it has changed since then. But that's uh, the study that was done by the government. And there's 128,000 square kilometers of lawn that is being unused in this country right now. Wow. Now, I was saying to Jason before we, we started uh, that one, my wife is from Northern California. And when I had been out there in the past, you know, they have people come in, mow their lawns, you know, treat their non-productive grass, uh, ornamental bushes and trees. And then they go home and they tend to be immigrants from Mexico. And if you go to the area where the immigrants live, they have fruit trees, they have vegetables growing, they're, they're taking care of themselves in this area and they're sharing with each other, which I think is quite admirable considering that the people they're taking care of aren't taking care of themselves or they're paying other people to do it. So one of the things that Food Forest Abundance seeks to do is to turn those unused garden spaces, the the lawns, the backyards, into sustainable permaculture gardens that require minimal work, not a lot of effort on the owner's part, yet you're going to be able to produce hundreds of pounds of food every year. Now, I think I've shown you pictures, some pictures from my garden crow, and there's I will have hundreds of pounds of food come this fall. And that's not counting just things that I planted, like the greens that I'm going to consume throughout the summer 
or uh, any herbs that I can make some tinctures with. And especially now, if you are unfortunate enough to watch the news, you'll see that all that they're, they're talking about is the economical and food supply collapse. And now is the best time, if you so desire, to start putting in things that are going to produce food for you. Also telling Jason was, I live in, a, in an area in Salem, Massachusetts, that the high, there's a lot of immigrants from Greece and Portugal in my area, and every single person has a garden. There's grapevines, there's fig trees, peach trees, apple trees, pear trees. I can't go a block without seeing a semi-permaculture garden that's being cared for by the people that uh, live in my neighborhood. And it does give me a lot of hope. But I think we really need to start looking at the fact that there's, there's a lot of uh, meatpacking plant fires. There's a lot of dairies that are closing. There's, I, I think there was just this week, there were 10,000 head of cattle that were just died in a heat wave in Kansas. And the implications for that are going to be felt very soon. And I don't know if any of you have seen anything disappearing from your supermarket shelves, but I know I have in this area. Well, yeah. As a matter of fact, I talked to a friend of mine up in uh, the Michigan area. He goes around and does network work. One of the places he went into can't even get the, you know, the drinking places, Culligan water drinking. They can't even get the, uh, the top part, those big bottled waters anymore. And that's getting pretty basic when, uh, when we're talking about water. It is. And I have a friend who lives up in Maine and he lives pretty close to Poland Springs. And I know it may not be a national company, but up here in the Northeast, they are a large producer of spring water. And it's been bought by Nestle, who takes the water, fluoridates it, and then sells it to you at a premium. And it used to just be a mom and pop company. While we're saying that, folks can go online, look up the bottled water listings for all the places that fluoridate. Last time I did it, there were one or two that I occasionally saw on the shelves that didn't have fluoride. But you need to be aware, there are people that follow this podcast who have removed most beers, soda. Put it this way, if there's a big manufacturer of something that requires water, like a soda or something, where do you think that water's coming from? It's from the municipality. So when you start to chalk up all the places that are putting fluoride into things, uh, you may try to be trying to do a good job in your home. You may be doing reverse osmosis, but then your wife or you go out shop and you bring these products into the home that are heavily fluoridated. And this includes things like toothpaste. Um, it's a big deal. The fluoridation is a big deal. And I would say in my own personal life, about 20 years ago, when I started getting serious about not ingesting fluoridated things, it makes a big difference in the long run in how you think and how you operate. But John, we should, uh, we should jump in. I'm not, we're not sure if this is going to actually be a 0.5 or a full two hours. It sounds like we may have enough to go the distance, but let's talk about what you guys did for me in the first hour when the most people are listening. So John came out with a crew uh, working for Food Forest Abundance. Again, Jim Gale in episode 370, if you want to catch that. And basically what we did is, what would you say? That's about 25 feet long and maybe two and a half feet wide, John, something like that. Yep. That's about right. And that was at least the primary area of focus for you. And 
because of the, the timing of the year, we start, we met in March. I came out there and checked out your soil, checked out the area, and we had to tweak it a little bit because the area was a little longer than it was wide than, than uh, the designers had planned for. So we put it in in phases. Uh, first, we just checked out the soil, went through the list of plants you would want to have there. And then we came out and we prepped the soil, which is a very important aspect. You had some excellent soil there because I know you mentioned you've been using some compost and soil there yourself for the uh, lilies that were there. Yeah. Plus Rhode Island, where I am is, is a farm coast. So it's just great soil before you do anything. Exactly. And once we got a lot of those lilies removed, that soil underneath, which had been compacted, uh, aerated pretty well. And we were able to start putting in some excellent, uh, edible foods for you. And I think the first thing we did was we did plant a couple of apple trees. Let's do the list while we're doing this. All right. So let's, let's tell everyone where I started. So John, I can never remember. Is it called? Well, what's the name of the big apple tree? That was a Cortland apple tree. Cortland. I can never remember that. So I have this big (laughs) Cortland apple. Uh, The problem is, is one of those sucker vines, they call it bittersweet here, had damaged it. And I didn't even know it had grown into the trunk. It looked like part of the tree. So I had that, um, but they're really hard. You don't really eat them like an apple. You have to let them soften. So I had that. I had some berries, two, three different kinds. And I had probably a 40 or a 50 foot run of two kinds of grapes. Here's what we did. John came in with his guys. They put in a Macintosh apple. They put in a, help me out here. Honey crisp. A honey crisp. We moved three types of blueberries that I already had that were offset by a month. So they don't all produce at the same time. And a blackberry that doesn't have thorns that gets about 11 feet tall. Here's what he brought with them. And by the way, if you're on a budget, you could simply buy all your own things and work from the blueprint, or you could learn from them and make your own blueprint. We put in the following, and this is on top of my kitchen herb garden and my other flower garden, which my wife does, which has some edible things. Here it goes. Bee balm, blueberry, chicory, calendula, carnation, chamomile. Those went in as seeds. Chive, two kinds. Chrysanthemum, coneflower, dame's rocket a dwarf fig, which is going to town right now. So that will be a big addition to figs. French tarragon, lavender, sage, hollyhock, hyssop, marigold, marshmallow, monastery bells, milkweed, milk thistle. Those milk thistles are going to town like you can't imagine. Nasturtium, which we have already eaten the flowers in our uh, salads. Oregano, pansy violet. We've already eaten the pansy violet as well, uh, the flowers, rosemary, two types, Shasta daisy, Stella de Oro lily bulbs. They went in planted as just bulbs, sunflower, which are going to town right now and will produce not only for the animals, but for me, because they have the big dinner, dinner plate size blooms, thyme, tulip, yarrow. And in the other garden, here's where it gets key. John brought me some Jerusalem artichokes, which I have never had. Now, I don't think they're classified as an artichoke. It's almost like a rhizome system underground. It's almost like a potato that looks a little funny that tastes like an artichoke. That's how I would describe it. We also put in long pie pumpkin and artichoke itself. So those are all the things. The vast majority of what I've just described to you is edible. So what would you add there, John? 
Well, I'd like to start with the Jerusalem artichokes, also called uh, sunchokes in certain areas. Those are a tuber, but they do grow like rhizomes. They will spread every year, unlike, say, a white or red potato. And one of the best benefits of these is they don't die in your soil. They won't just sit there and rot. They're a great emergency or even survival food. This was taught to the, uh, to the early Puritans that came to this part of the country as they would call it the hungry, hungry time food. It'd be when your winter supplies had been exhausted. You had no more meat. You had no more stored foods. Well, did you make note of where these tubers were growing? Because they're going to be fresh and edible any time of year. As long as you can get through the soil, you can get to them. And they are packed with energy. I mean, the, they have extremely high inulin fiber in them, which is great for the gut biome. It's going to help with your immune system. And if you're a diabetic, this is a great potato substitute because it's such a low glycemic in, index and it's going to help you, uh, you, you know, get that fiber in that your, your body needs. The great thing about it too, is you can cut the flowers off. They look like sunflowers when they, they get about, I don't know, I'd say six to eight, nine feet high. And you will not be able to truly get rid of them. Even if you think you got them all up, they will continue to come back. As a matter of fact, Crow, the, uh, the patch that I dug out in my garden to bring to you has already uh, re-sown itself, and I'm, I have about four-foot-tall uh, shoots coming off of it at this time. Wow, and we should, we should point out, this is, you know, we're making it sound like this is desperate starvation, but this is good food, man. They literally taste like, the closest I can come is like if you bake a potato, that kind of consistency with a very close to what an artichoke tastes like, like a cross between the two. I would not consider this poverty food. This is good eating. No, we, John, is. John left me two bags that we didn't plant all of them. And we, we cooked them in the following ways. We sauteed them. And then we realized a better way to do it is just to bake them like it's a potato. So we put olive oil on them and maybe some salt and you just bake them. And they're fantastic. They, it's, Everyone loves the taste of artichoke. Very few people don't. And that is the, the subtle idea of what this potato-like plant tastes like. So it's, it's good eating is my point. It's very good eating. As a matter of fact, it's kind of become sort of, I don't know how you'd say it, but uh, you know, for the more well-to-do, it, it's kind of a specialty dish now. And mm -hmm. it, you know, it started off as as just a, you know, like, dear God, I'm hungry. Let's eat this to, you know, the, the, uh, well-to-do are getting this at, in, um, nice restaurants, five-star restaurants, which is, is crazy to me. My uh, grandfather who, who was a chef, uh, from Italy used to say there was a saying, and I forget it in Italian, but essentially it was, if the King knew what the peasants eat, the peasants would have no more food because the <laughs> peasant food was so good and so healthy that they they ate like kings while the king had to have all of his stuff brought to him didn't get things fresh you know things like things of that nature but the thing i i uh the artichoke plant is, is how is that doing in, in the garden because i know we planted it off in what you call the miscellaneous garden oh all, all the way off in the corner where the wisteria was yeah yeah i have to go check because i just been weeding everything else everything exploded in Good. the last week. And so I, I haven't kept up on that corner yet. I weeded it out, but I got to go back. 
And one of the biggest things you did was that Jerusalem artichoke. And the reason is, it's like you say, that thing is spreading underground. And it's, you know, even if you're in the dead of winter, you could dig those up and have good fresh food. And if stuff goes down in this country, which you know it will, do you suppose they'll plan to get people in the in the heart of winter and things like that? So I had never seen or eaten a Jerusalem artichoke. And now I'm just saying that is such a good backup emergency thing. Put five, 10 of them in and forget about it. Just know where they are. Um, and, and, you know, the other thing we were talking, yeah, I have a lawn that I inherited from my grandparents through my father. My father hired a PhD in lawn care. I'm not even kidding you. And they were doing all, he had the most beautiful lawn. I said, man, we live in a watershed. What the hell are you doing? You're complaining the dog has hot spots. What do you think? And that all stopped. Well, I don't have the most beautiful lawn in the neighborhood anymore, but guess what? It's going back to organic. And in that, all those, it's covered with dandelions. There's another good emergency food. And as we've covered, you can eat the bloom, you can eat the stock, you can eat the leaves, you can eat the roots. So this is the way I think about things now. I didn't want to track us off too far, but I think people really need to wake up to Jerusalem artichoke. Doesn't take that much space. And in a pinch, it could feed you. Exactly. And I've let the uh, grass area of my my uh, property go as well to dandelions to white clover which is a great nitrogen fixer if you plan on uh, expanding your garden it's going to put a lot of nitrogen in the soil it's going to bring the bees and there's no excuse now for people to dump chemicals in their lawns and no. fertilizer in their lawns especially now that you know there's there's a shortage of it so why are you going to use that stuff anyway the things that you can do is if you're not going to eat the things in your lawn, well, you can compost them. You can make a good compost that'll break down and you can feed your garden with all those clippings of all those organic growths that are coming out. So I want to get back to a couple of things, but when I moved into my house, the, the garden was, and there was no garden. There was nothing here and there was no life. There was nothing in the backyard. I started putting in the garden. I started putting in some grapevines and some blackberry bushes. All of a sudden, the birds are hanging out in my yard. The animals are coming back. The grass is getting greener and there's more things growing in it. And then you realize, well, geez, nature wants to take care of me. I'm getting wild lettuce. I'm getting dandelions. And the other night, my wife and I were just sitting outside. And for the first time in 19 years, we saw fireflies going around the, uh, the garden, which I had never seen in my backyard before. Perfect. There, there's always a way to bring that back. And I think that's the thing people need to realize because we're, we are witnessing a controlled destruction of our economy, of our food supply, of all the things we need. And if you don't design your life right now, someone already has a design waiting for you. And that's not going to be something you're happy with. And one of the the key things is when you start designing your life in the garden, being with your work, whatever it may be, you're going to get more freedom. And I think internally, every human really wants to be free. They want to do their own thing. They don't want to be bothered. And if you can eat right off the land, well, guess what? You don't have to go somewhere and be fed, God knows what, potatoes and rice or uh, GMO foods for the rest of your life in a government provided building. I, I mean, who, who would really want that? 
uh, if you don't, if you realize you have the choice and you can do this for yourself and, you know, to get back to your garden with the blueberries that we did put in, you have, you have a couple of different kinds of blueberries. Three uh, offset by the, it's about a month offset between each blooming. Uh, one, I think two are low bush. One is high bush. But my point yes. is, is all my blueberries don't come at once. They come over roughly three months. Right. So you're going to be eating fresh blueberries for three months. And one of the ones I put in was a main blueberry, which is one of the hardiest uh, blueberries you're going to find, if not the hardiest, because it's used to, to growing in those uh, ice cold, almost tundra regions. I, I lost track because we had the three. Where did the main you know where the big blueberry is? Is it right or left of that? If you if you face oh, the house, if you're looking at it, it's on the left. It's it's the the smaller one on the left. Well, we pulled three blueberries out of the existing garden, and you added the one. Mm-hmm. I, I'm gonna have to go out and check. It's just so it it exploded about a week ago, and everything like tripled in size so quickly. So now, of course, things are covering other things. You know, I, we've got to go in. Oh, and I took you off your thought train, but I want to get back to the thistle, but go ahead. You were, you were saying blueberry. Yeah. The great thing about blueberries is you can save them. You can eat them. You can preserve them. You can make pies with them and they're healthy. They're sweet. That's where your sugar content should be coming from is a fruit like that. And if you're going to sustain on that for three months, I mean, it's not your primary source of food, but you get, you get that sweetness in with everything else you're, you're, uh, you're eating come, uh, but probably another month or so, you're going to be eating blueberries almost yep. daily. Yep. And my wife and I make a, we have blackberries and blueberries and we make a nice jam just to preserve. I mean, we'll eat a bunch of them fresh, but you know, there's usually enough with enough time that you're going to be able to do more. You can give some away to your neighbors. You can keep some for the winter. You, you can freeze some, you can preserve them. Your imagination is going to be your limits when it comes to this sort of gardening. And nature's going to put in and help you fill those gaps. As you said, it's exploding. You probably don't have a lot of the uh, spaces to walk in there now at this point, I would imagine. No, there's, there's nowhere. Um, and, and one of the things, so we've never grown thistle before. Let's talk about that. My wife was like, we go out every morning and we look because like the squirrels and you know what? I think chipmunks actually eat worms. Do you know if that's true? Well, they do burrow. Yeah. I, I, I would imagine they do. But anyhow, the little holes are always dug every oh, yeah. morning. But you see, we don't look at that as a problem. We want the squirrels and the chipmunks. So I just bury up the things. If something got tipped or damaged a little bit, I just fix it up and let it go. My idea is, hey, man, those things in nature are helping nature to proceed as the creator intended. So we need to change our mindset about how we treat the animals that come into the garden. But the thistles talk about some of these. I mean, that that thing explodes. It's easy to grow. Most of the animals don't want anything to do with it because it's a thistle. (laughs) Um, What can be done with it? So the milk thistle is, it's a really good, healthy herb or, or uh, green, if you will, because I know that gets pretty big, but it helps with liver health. Number one, you can make a tea with it. It's a liver detoxicant. Um, So if you're happy, you know, as we age, we don't, you know, things may not work as well as they used to when we were 25 years old, but if it cleans out the liver, which cleans out your blood, you're going to get all those poisons flushed out of you. It's uh, it can reverse toxicity in the body, including, um, 
harmful effects of alcohol consumption, pesticides in our food supply, and heavy metals in the water supply. So that's one of the one of the great benefits of milk thistle. The other thing about it, it has a, a lot of it has flavonoids in it, which help protect against cancer. <laughs> and have you ever juiced it? Have you ever just because I'm I was thinking about juice. So when you go get it, what do you do? You carefully pull a leaf and then take scissors and clip off the periphery where all the little <laughs> Ex- little thistles exactly. are. Is that the idea? That is the idea. I, I mean, so a couple things you can do with it or um you can dry it and sprinkle it into you know into dishes you in into whatever food you may be cooking that day oh, wow. um you can juice it you can't cut off those <laughs> the, those i guess thorns for lack of a better word and uh throw it in a salad and as far as juicing i've never done that with the juicer but there's no reason why you couldn't if you can juice lettuce. What about the the stalk and the flower? Because there's going to be, I don't know if people have seen, thistles have beautiful flowers. And believe it or not, there was a wild thistle around here, which was one of the earliest things that got me thinking cymatically about how a plant forms. In other words, a thistle is complex, very complex, must be a higher vibration than some other plants. But what about the stalk and what about the flower? Do you do anything with those? You can make a tea with it like you would for uh, chamomile. Mm. And the, the tea is a great little quick, easy thing you can do. If you go out there, clip a few, throw it in some hot water, you can have milk thistle tea. And it's a great way to start your morning. Like one of the things that I do is, I know you have, you have a lot of mint. I saw, I saw your little patch of mint there. And yep. we, I think, we, yes, we did put in lemon balm as well. Two. Two. And you know, one of the things I love to do is uh, go out in the morning with a hot mug of water, just pick those uh, lemon balm and mint leaves, throw it in the uh, hot water, let it steep for a little bit and just drink the tea. It's relaxing. I, I, I'm out there appreciating what I have out there. Just It's such a vibration elevator, I guess, for lack of a better word, to have something living going into your body. And you can do a lot with the milk thistle. I mean, the tea is great. You can eat all of it. That's the great thing about it. Um, is it flower, those purple thistle flowers? Is that what's coming up right now for you, Crow? No. It, like if I put my arms as big around as I could and not quite close them, that is the body wow. of the leafing plant. The flowering stem has not yet come up. And there's two. They're right next to each other. And, and I was going to tell folks about mint. So you should know these things like spearmint and peppermint. Uh, you could grow those anywhere, almost any time, but you could grow them in the desert. I don't know that's true, but they go. They have a rhizome system like running bamboo. Everyone's got an idea of running bamboo. It's scary, right? Well, yeah, it is. That stuff will run. And at a certain point, it's very difficult to get rid of. Well, mint is a similar thing. Uh, and here's what I found. You remember where the mint I have, my sister put in. And it's right by my front door, but there are these big stones that are a step and all these other stones that are a step off the driveway. And the mint was coming up everywhere in between it. You can't even get down into the cracks to get it. This is what I did since we don't eat table salt ever. There's old table salt from Lord knows how long ago. And I mixed it strong in water and I poured it between all the cracks and it's a rhizome barrier for that mint. And the other thing I would mention is if you do not want mint everywhere, when it goes to flower, get out your little clippers or your, your little pinching fingers and get every single one of those flowers pinched off, or you will have mint 
like you never imagined. Yes, absolutely. And that, that actually is such a great idea as far as the salt in the water, because table salt is not suitable for human consumption. Well, we should put, we should qualify that a little bit. You know, <laughs> everyone knows what salting the earth does and table salt would be the worst version of that. What I'm saying is if you can't get to an area and you know, you're not growing other things, it works as a perfect rhizome barrier. What a rhizome barrier is like, I used to be big into bamboo for running bamboos. You have to get this super thick plastic thing called rhizome barrier it has to go down three and a half feet. So you're basically creating a pot in the ground so that all that running rhizome can't escape. And mint, I, I, I don't know about you, John, I can't think of another plant that will take over your world as quick as mint. No, mint is probably the, the fastest. I mean, I planted some, I, I have a built-in planter, some interlocking stones I put in. I put some mint in there. It found its way. It's coming out of every side, any space it could find to grow. I'm picking mint out of rock at this point. I mean, it is such a proliferative plant. Well, there's, there's something else I should mention about mint. So I have spagyrics that I've basically been taking homeopathic. We'll just call them spagyrics. And I mentioned that I found if I took mint, like if I go to the beach and those little midges and mosquitoes are out, which is quite frequent this time of year, I used to take some mint and rub it on my arms and legs works perfect. But I was told if you're taking certain homeopaths, you'll deaden their effect if you do that. On the one hand, it's a great way to keep the bugs off you. And by the way, mice hate mint. That's another tip I can give you. And it's true. I tested it. If you're trying to keep mice out, um, you know, you could go to the store and you get extracts for baking of mint, spearmint, peppermint. Um, that'll keep mice away. Anyhow, that's what I can say about mint. Yeah. And. The funny thing is, uh, I use mint extract to keep mice away from my home. And I, I just put some around certain areas of my house and haven't had a mouse in here in over a decade. So that does work 100%. So, so does tea tree oil, by the way, for people who have it. You know what? Another thing, like my, if, if I know I'm going to someone's house and they're going to have a fire and we'll be sitting outside, I'll cut some lavender and mint and I'll throw it on the fire because that will keep the mosquitoes away. Oh, wow. Yeah. At least I, I've done that in the past. I've, I've rubbed lavender on me as well. And that does tend to keep them away because the oil is strong and pungent. I mean, it's very pleasant and relaxing, but at the same time, you know, insects don't, don't love it. They like the flowers perhaps, but they're not going to like the oil contained in the, in the, in the uh, needles of a lavender plant. So when the mosquitoes come out, I throw that stuff right on. And we are insect free for a period of time, at least. That's good to know. That's good to know. I'm going to give it a go. So, so Jason, you got anything on your mind with regard to plant geeks? Well, I'm kind of just taking it all in because I really am getting concerned about what's going on here in the, the country in general. So everybody should be paying attention and thinking, what can I do in my area? Maybe we should talk about what food forest abundance uh, in general is, since maybe, maybe not everyone has heard that episode. So let's touch on it in a second. But Jason's down in Louisiana, and he has a yard. Correct me if I'm wrong, John. Here's what I do. I do apples, avocados, oranges, tangerines, and damn well, Jerusalem artichoke, wherever I could get it, just as an emergency backup. But he could grow basically anything where he is. He could pretty much grow anything. and. The winters in Louisiana, what about Jason, you said about three months long. 
and probably don't get down to don't get much down below freezing. Is that correct? It can occasionally, but winters are definitely mild. Okay. Well, a couple things you can put in that are super prolific are fig trees. And you can actually create bushes with the fig trees and have figs throughout the summer. Uh, You can probably grow citrus trees. And the great thing for down south, sweet potatoes. Great thing about sweet potatoes, or even regular potatoes, but more so with the sweet potatoes, they'll grow great down where you are. The greens that come off of them are edible. You can uh, cook it up like a, you know, saute it like you, you would spinach or some other green. And then at the end of that whole process, you can dig up the tuber and you're going to be able to have food for quite a while. And the great thing about them is they store so well. So, but, but, but wait a minute. So you're saying that the greens of sweet potatoes, that, that I didn't even know that. And the reason is because I know the potato we all use, the early variants of that were originally poison. Yeah. They're part of the, uh, the deadly the, uh, nightshade or something. The deadly nightshade, nightshade. same yeah. with, uh, you know, tomatoes and, yep, yep. and peppers and eggplant or aubergine if you're. So don't, don't eat the greens, as far as I know, on the normal potatoes. No. I think what John's just informed me. And by the way, people are going to get confused. What the hell's a sweet potato? What the hell's a yam? Is there a difference? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it depends on where you are in, in this country, Depend uh, it, whether it's a yam or a sweet potato. But, but the greens are good to go. On a sweet potato or yam, greens are good to go. And that's going to give you... Conti- that's going to give you continued food. That, that's a great example of a multi-purpose plant as far as, you know, when it's all said and done and you're done clipping those greens off and cooking them, well, you got something right underground you can dig up and, and have with, with your dinner or by itself. I mean, I love to uh, cut up sweet potatoes with a lot of, you know, throwing some cayenne pepper and just make like a, like home fries with it. That's uh, something mm-hmm. that's, that I really enjoy because you get that contrast between the sweet and the hot. It's to me, it's very, I like it. You know what we should do, John, is we should get a snapshot of Jason's backyard and just provide him a list. See, I'm better suited to the kind of weather he has. Like I know, I knew everything I could grow in San Diego <laughs> when I got here. Not so much. I knew every plant in San Diego when I got here, you know, you got to start clean, but he, it would be interesting to put together a food plant list for Jason where he is. He could have some some nice thing. I think he might even get away with an avocado. He probably could. And avocado, my, my brother-in-law is Mexican and every September his mother boxes up avocados and sends them out here. And they are the best avocados I've ever had out here because they came right from the tree in a box and shipped next day. And I can't get that in a store. there's no way I'm going to get an avocado that tastes that good from a supermarket or even a fruit store for that matter. I I don't know anyone who doesn't like avocado. I've never met them. I've met people that think they don't like them, but they've never tried. I've met people that don't like guacamole because they're not big on squished foods. But where I grew up, there's an incorporated city within San Diego called La Mesa. Almost everything there is named after an avocado. Calavo Drive, that's a type of avocado. Fuerte, that's a type of avocado. Avocado Boulevard. But my point is, I had this friend when I was doing bamboo who had bought a house with all this bamboo. He had 75-year-old original avocado trees that only produced slightly because apparently they need to be trimmed a certain way to be reinvigorated. I mean, people would fight 
for those avocados. They were, it, it's, you can't even describe how good they are. I'm just saying, I think Jason might get away with a hoss where yeah. he is. Well, that'd be pretty cool. We could look it up to see, uh, you could look it up to see if anyone in your area is pulling it off. And at the worst, you could put it near the house and, and you know, cause if it's near the house, it probably won't freeze to death unless it really gets bad. Yeah. That, well, let, let's put it this way. My wife is from, uh, Northern California. They were growing citrus trees and they were growing avocado trees up there. So if they're oh, wow. doing it up there, you can probably find a, a specific species that'll grow down where you are, Jason. And I, I mean, that was one of the greatest things about my first time in California was seeing and tasting and picking an actual lemon off of a tree. I'd never done that before. <laughs> it was probably 20 years ago. And I, I was just I, I was just pulling, picking them off the ground, picking them off the tree, making lemonade, slicing it up, putting in a little bit in tea. I, I mean, there's so much you could do that, that we just, we've lost. And um, that, you know, Jason, I'd be more than happy to help you uh, talk over a list and get some food in for you. Because, you know, the one thing that, that I, I do think about now, just, I know it's a little off track, but, you know, if you're growing this food and you have in some cases, you're going to have more than you can possibly use. Well, there's going to be people in your neighborhood. It's going to be family that you can share with. And that's a great way to build community. I have a, a very productive pear tree. And every September, I pick a bunch of them just for my neighbors. And that's how I met all my neighbors, was I just walk over when I'd see them outside, I'd hand them you know, a bag of pears and tell them if they need any more, come and see me. And, and now I know my neighbors. And how many people, uh, you, you know, I know it still exists, but how many people on a, a regular basis are friendly with their neighbors these days? Yeah, it's fading. I'm doing my part. I know my neighbors. <laughs> I know. And it's, it's, it's almost like a, like a lost art. It's like what, what we have gained has been technology, isolation, and, you know, the loss of self-reliance. And you can't talk if one of the neighbors watches CNN and the other one watches Fox. Oh my God. <laughs> That's so, um, you know, zombies, but, but I just looked this up guys within the United States, avocado trees called Percy Americana are grown predominantly in California, Florida, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, Texas, but they can also be grown in Louisiana. And I'll tell you what Jason has. The California does not is an extremely humid climate and that will translate to awesome fruit. And just so you know, Jason, you are in USDA zone nine or 10 or somewhere in there, but it could be done. I just looked it up. What does nine or 10 mean? There's a zone, the USDA, you could look up what growing zone you're in, which is actually important to know, particularly for me. And in California, it doesn't matter. I could grow very few things I couldn't grow. Now, when I came to Rhode Island, very few things I can grow compared to California. I'm in zone seven or seven A. And what it does is when you go to buy plants or seeds, you look up what zones they will flourish in. And so now you know your zone. And I saw people growing Haas avocados in uh, New Orleans, by the way. So you could do that. But what I'm saying is I would guess if you grew an avocado and were diligent about it, you might be able to produce better fruit than most people in California simply because of your humidity and heat level. Because originally, if I'm not mistaken, John, those were jungle. Weren't avocados jungle plants yes, originally? Were. Yeah. And you know, Jason, you, you, you could turn your, one of the great things you can do, especially where you are is 
you can layer all those systems. And if you were so inclined, you could uh, sell some of them at a farmer's market. Not, not that you have all the time in the world, but in your climate, you're going to produce so much stuff in a short period of time that you're probably going to be overwhelmed with the, uh, with the harvest. In Rhode Island, you get smallish, okay, I would call them okay avocados. Sometimes they're three bucks a piece and they're not that big. No. And, and I, same thing. I'm just, uh, I'm north of you, Crow, and it's the same thing. Right. I mean, you know, I, like I said, I've been out to California quite a bit. I don't even eat meat when I'm out there. I'm, I'm so enamored with the fresh produce I can get. It doesn't taste the same. Like, like I had said, but the amount that's grown there, you, you can't, you can't have here. Or if you do, it's been shipped across the country or from another country. And it, it's lost its vitamin content, mineral content, freshness. It, it's, it, it, it's just not the way to eat, which is, you know, one concept I, I've kind of come to develop is I call it five cents eating. When, when you are growing, picking and cultivating your own, your own garden, your own food forest, your permaculture design, you're engaging all of your senses. If you walk into a supermarket and you pick up an apple, might look very shiny, but it is not going to feel the same as when you pick one off the tree. It's not going to taste the same as something that you allowed to ripen on the tree, pick and have for breakfast, or even as a dessert after dinner. It's not going to smell the same. You ever pick up, Crow, you're from California. You've picked a fresh lemon in your life. All, all fresh. What, what comes out of the supermarkets, all is the only way I could describe it. People who, who grew up in the 70s, know that when you grab a tomato from the supermarket, it's like tomato flavored water, basically, or, you know, smelling tomato smelling water in Rhode Island. It's the same thing. I can't get a tangerine or an orange that's worth anything to save my life. It just, it tastes, I, I don't even eat them because they taste so wrong. No, it's night, it's night and day. You, I mean, if you, a person who had never eaten an orange off a tree that ripened on a tree, I'll tell you what would happen. You pick one, you eat it and you go, oh my God. And then you sit down and pick another five. That's what happens. <laughs> and yeah, that's essentially what I did in California. And here's another, another great thing. I was in, this must've been almost five years ago. I was visiting family in Italy and I was staying in Sorrento. Sorrento is known for its lemons, but one of the things that, that the city of Sorrento has done is as you're walking along some of the main streets and even the side streets, they have decided, Hey, you know, what's a great idea. Let's plant orange trees all along the street for everybody, for everybody. That is so awesome. That's what it should be. That's exactly what it should be. And that's why that's essentially why I joined food forest abundance is because that's the vision I, I, I want to be a part of is I was picking fruit off of a tree outdoors peeling it, eating it, and just tossing the skins away. I, I was walking by um, the place. I stayed in an Airbnb there, and it was on a lemon grove. The owner of it was so, so happy to have guests. And at, uh, I think it was March, that every morning he would bring us uh, lemons and oranges that he picked himself for breakfast. And went <laughs> to crack open that fresh orange, or lemon and you can smell 
you can almost smell and taste the health that your body is receiving from it. That's a great way to combat obesity, diabetes, you know, a lot of ill health effects and food should be available for everyone. You know, you know, um, one, one of the things I remember, uh, I started an interview with George Carlin some years ago and he said, you know, there's two God given rights. Everyone's okay. Let's get something to eat. And there's nothing wrong with that. In, in fact, we've kind of lost a little bit of that as far as giving people something to eat. There should be no food deserts in this country. There should be no vacant lots. We can have fruit, food, fruit, uh, vegetables growing everywhere, available for everyone. And if, if you have access to food and an abundant amount of it, great thing is you become unmanageable. You become ungovernable because you have freedom as soon as you walk out the door. No one can pull that away from you and say, well, guess what? There's a food shortage. Well, I don't see it. I, I got food everywhere I look. I can actually add to that. You're, you're doing the orange thing. So has anyone listening ever been in a big orange grove when it's the right time, it's blooming or a lemon grove and that smell? I can't describe it. I can't even come close. But what it feels like is an angel put down their hand and temporarily put you in heaven. It's intoxicating the smell. Here's something people may not know. You know where Disneyland is um, near L.A.? In California, the county there is named Orange. Want to know why? Because it used to be mile after mile after mile of orange groves. When you used to drive through there, that smell would permeate everything. As far as I know, and I didn't look this up, but I'm reasonably sure, not 100% sure, the last orange tree is was saved and it's inside Disneyland. <laughs> <laughs> so what we, what we lost was mile after mile after mile of the oranges that named the very county. And if I'm not mistaken, the one of the original oranges was left in Disneyland. So now we've got the magical kingdom from hell, team rat, <laughs> and one orange tree left. Just saying. <laughs> well, I've experienced exactly what you're talking about, Carl. It's the, the scent of a, uh, of a citrus flower. It's almost like intense jasmine. I don't know how to describe it, but it just fills the air. It makes you high. You you literally start to feel euphoric when you're surrounded by that at a at a certain level. It's funny you say that because I was um, I, I had told you I'd gone to uh, visit some family in in Naples this uh, about a month and a half ago, and I'm walking with my son and my mother, and we see a monastery. And it's open to the public. So we decided to go take a look inside. And they had extremely tall orange and lemon trees. And they were in bloom. And as soon as you walked through the gate, you were just hit with that, that scent. And I just remember feeling this utter relaxation and happiness come over yep, me. Like, yep. And I sat there with, with my family for about an hour. And we were just chatting just looking at all the things I pit, I try, I went and felt in orange. I was like, maybe it's ready. No, not, not quite ready yet, but, but my God, was it, uh, it really is intoxicated. So we're coming to the top of the hour here, John, for hour one, we're going to do an hour two, because I think we have plenty to talk about, but let's do a real quick thing with Jason. We'll start to do food for its abundance for Jason. Jason, what's your favorite fruit? Blueberries. 
blueberries. You can grow blueberries. Um, do you know what Rose's favorite fruit is? Is Rose listening? Rose, what's your favorite fruit? Citrus. I love citrus. So you guys are living in a place where you could get blueberries. You could do two or three varieties that that give the fruit about a month apart or weeks apart. You could put in, I would suggest tangerines, wouldn't you, John, for where they're at? There's a chance that it could get low, but I don't I don't think they will ever get cold enough to freeze it. The, the plant might get damaged, but I would suggest tangerines and an orange unless they love lemons. What would you suggest, John? I would definitely suggest tangerines. So again, just bring up California, Northern California. My wife used to go to a farm near uh, Napa and pick wild clementines, tangerines. Mm. And, you know, to this day, she loves them. I get them shipped out occasionally. So you can grow that there. And the great thing about it is it's not going to take a lot of work. Once you initially get it in the ground, maybe trim it a bit. You might spend an hour every year, just maybe clipping off a few uh, leaves, maybe some suckers. No, they go, you know, you put it's, it's, yeah. you know, plug and play to use a terrible technical term for something that has no <laughs> business being described that way, but we are coming to the top of the hour. We should totally see if Jason and Rose want to get into it at the very least you could plant trees. And I think minimally everyone listening, go get some Jerusalem artichokes. If you have a patch of ground as an emergency backup, they don't take a lot of care and they spread and spread and spread on their own. Uh, it's a good idea, but that does bring us to the top of the hour for episode 422 with Jason Lindgren and John D'Antonio. Uh, we're going to get ready, take a short break, come back to hour two. Hour two is available to all membership at crow777radio.com, C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. And John, I know you have an account, so instead of just reiterating everything, we'll be sure that you log in when this goes up and in comments, put all the links to Food Forest Abundance, your contact if you want to, all the things people need to get. There it is. I would like to wish everyone a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era and join us for hour two over at crow777radio.com. Cheers.
enemies of knowing. <laughs>